Today, we're talking about the seven deadly sins of money and should there, is there a morality to money? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm glad you're joining us this week. Today's conversation was fascinating. It really made me think the way Jim poses his questions and his thoughts and the way he articulates the concepts in his book around the seven deadly money sins and the morality of money really gets us thinking, thinking in ways that I think is important of can businesses be honorable? What is wealth in a zero sum capacity? Is it possible to have capitalism that is for the greater good or is capitalism hurting everyone and that's the conversations we have today we talk about what does it mean to be moral and how can we use that to benefit society as a whole i really enjoy jim's perspective you're going to enjoy this conversation i just want to say thank you to the listeners i've been getting quite a few emails lately people saying they're enjoying the guest and you know what me too the guests have been fascinating So thank you to the guests and the listeners for listening. And if you've really been enjoying this, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. It shows our audience, our guests, that you're enjoying this content, which makes them want to come back and share even more. Thank you very much and enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, my guest is James Audison, but we're going to call him Jim. Who is he? He's an American philosopher and an economist. He is the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics at the University of Notre Dame. Jim joined the philosophy department at the University of Chicago, receiving his PhD in 1997. After graduating from Chicago, he took several positions, including one in philosophy department at the University of Alabama, where he began as assistant professor, receiving tenure, and rose to become the department chair. In 2007, he accepted a position as a joint professor of philosophy and economics and director of the honors program in Yeshiva University in New York City. And then in 2013, he moved to Wake Forest University. And in 2020, he returned as faculty at the University of Notre Dame. Jim has served on several visiting scholar teaching positions throughout his career as he lectures on philosophy and economics. He widely uses Adam Smith, classical liberalism, political economy, business ethics, and related issues. And he is an author author of several books, including The Seven Deadly Economic Sins that we'll be talking on. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be with you. I heard you on a podcast, and then I got your book, The Seven Deadly Economic Sins. And I really thought it'd be great to have you on the podcast because normally our guests know that we look at the intersection of our minds, our money, and what matters most. And we've tended to focus on psychology, the emotions behind our money, why we make money decisions, which has been really good for ourselves to understand ourselves because we tell ourselves so many different stories around money. It's such an emotional topic. 
And I thought it'd be great to have you on here because I think the idea of the morality of money is an important one that we need to discuss. And I think your focus on philosophy and economics and ethics will really help ourselves understand the broader societal questions around money and the purpose of money and what benefits and negative harmful impacts money can have overall society. So first, I want to start with you, though, around your story. Growing up, what, if any, was the story or meaning that was attached to money in your household? That's a good question. Thank you for asking. I mean, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, so that was not really a thing that people in my family did. And most of my family was made up, I have a lot of military in my family, but a lot of the family was made up of sort of small time serial entrepreneurs. So Mm. people starting businesses, most of which would fail, they're fairly small scale. And so, you know, money was the sort of thing that people thought, well, you had to work hard. You know, we were sort of maybe even morally required to work hard to earn it, but there wasn't very much of it. And so I grew up very acutely aware of just how great the wealth inequality in places like the United States was. Mm. There was a great range, at least it seemed to me growing up, um, between some of the people in my family and my community, which was sort of lower uh, working class, and what I saw on TV. I don't know if you remember this show from the 90s, I think it was called uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. There was a TV show about that. You know, I used to watch that show and just think, are there really people who live like that? <laughs> I, mean, I guess there were, there still are. But I mean, I didn't feel poor. It was just sort of how life was. You know, money was something we did have to be scrupulously careful about. And, you know, some of this has found its way into some of my work, but we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, not just what might be nice things to have, but what are we willing to give up in order to get a nice thing? And I think that sense of trade-off was something that really was part of my, you know, sort of inculcated into my thinking from a very early age, that everything is with trade-offs. And if you have limited resources, then... You really have to think hard about um, not just what might you ideally like to have, you know, in a nirvana situation when you had all the money in the world, but, you know, really given it the constraints of limited resources, what are the things that are most necessary? What are the most highly valued things, even if that means you have to give some other things up that you would like to have, but not as much or that aren't quite as important? Oh, wow. Thanks so much for sharing that. And, you know, you, you have two statements there that I wrote down that I feel are really impactful just at this point in our wealth accumulation as a global society, but everything has trade-offs, which I almost feel like is as common sense as that sounds. I don't think we all think that. And the other one is constraints of limited resources. I really like that. And, and it made me think of, uh, John Stewart talked about, it was about time, I think, on jokes, but like the smaller amount of time was the more constraints, the more creative he could be. And, and it just made me think the constraints of limited resources is, again, this idea of constraints is almost an opportunity to know what is important to us. But I think that for most of us, we don't have these constraints right now, or we don't want these constraints. Yeah. That's where a lot of your work comes in. So with your money story and this idea of constraints and trade-offs, which I think is a, a really valuable lesson that you were learning in your childhood... How, if at all, did that influence your decision to do your dissertation on Adam Smith's moral theory? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. Maybe a psychologist would tell a different story. (laughs) You know, when I was in graduate school, my life is a series of accidents. I don't know how much you want to really know about this. But as I said, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I didn't really know what college was about. And I initially thought I wanted to be a medical doctor. And then I took a class in classics department, sort of by accident, and uh, loved that. And 
that led me into philosophy and some other of the great works of Western civilization. I never would have dreamed that I would go on to graduate school and get a PhD. That just wasn't anything that anybody in my family ever did. When I was in graduate school, I became a great fan of David Hume. David Hume is an 18th century Scottish philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers writing in the English language. And then while I was just sort of casting around, I found out that he and Adam Smith had been friends. Um, now, I hadn't known that, but the two of them were friends. They were both Scotsmen. They became lifelong friends. Um, and so that just got me interested. I thought, well, any friend of Hume is a friend of mine. So I thought I would, I mean, I'd heard of Adam Smith, but I didn't really know anything about Adam Smith. And so I looked into a little bit, found out that he had written this book, not the now much more famous one, The Wealth of Nations. That one many people have heard of, but he wrote another book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And I thought sort of on a lark, well, I don't know, let me take a look at it and see if it's any good. And I read it and I was just blown away by the insights in it. It really inaugurated, I mean, it was one of the first books to attempt to take what Newton, Isaac Newton had done for heavenly bodies and inert objects in motion, trying to look at all this disparate phenomena and come up with some principles that would describe all of them. What Smith wanted to do was do something similar for human behavior. So he wondered whether we could look at human behavior and similarly, you know, look at lots of different things that human beings do and see if we could discover patterns that maybe we could just use to construct some principles that might enable us to understand, explain, maybe even predict human behavior. Maybe that seems relatively obvious to us these days. You know, we do a lot of empirical research into human psychology and human behavior now, but people were not doing that in the 18th century. And so what Smith really wanted to do and what he did in that book, which I thought was just groundbreaking, was he wanted to approach human morality. So he noticed that every human community has a system of morality and all human beings seem to go through this process of when they're born, they don't really have any moral sentiments at all. They just have things they want and they just scream and cry out and demand that they get satisfied, whatever they are. But eventually, by the time they become adults, they've developed a very sophisticated sense of moral sensibility. They develop a sense of what's appropriate to ask for and what's inappropriate to ask for or what's an appropriate way to ask for things and inappropriate ways to ask for things. And so Smith wanted to try to figure out, well, what effectuates that transition? How do we all go through that transition? And could we, by looking empirically at human behavior and human development, could we figure out, could we observe patterns um, that maybe we could describe with principles? And that seemed to me a very forward-looking way to think about human morality. So, you know, that book is not like a lot of other 18th century and before 18th century, but, you know, most moral philosophy up until then, and a lot of it today, is it's comprised of someone telling you how you ought to behave. So, you know, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do, or this is what a virtuous life is, this is what a vicious life is. There's not as much of that in Smith. He wanted to engage in empirical investigation. It's more something like what we might today call moral psychology. How do we come to have the moral sentiments we do? Um, and how do they change over time? How are they maintained over time? How dependent are they on our particular communities? You know, the feedback we get from people around us. I'll just give you one example that he uses. It's one of his favorite examples. It's joke telling. So you mentioned John Stewart. So Smith has, talks quite a bit about joke telling and laughing at jokes. And what he notices is that you know, there are rules about it, aren't there? There are rules about, you know, what kinds of jokes are appropriate to tell, what are inappropriate to tell. And those rules are very sensitive to context. So, you know, in some contexts, a particular joke might be acceptable, but in a different context, it's not. And there are even rules about things like laughing. You know, how long should you laugh at a joke? When does laughing become too long? And, you know, these sorts of things. And what Smith was fascinated by was the fact that there are rules about these things, 
the rules change over time. And the third part of it is that there isn't any person in charge of it. We all sort of know what the rules are. Sometimes we push the boundaries a little bit and sometimes, you know, we'll cross a line, but we have a sense of what the rules are, but there's no single person in charge of it. And these rules change over time. So Smith thought that this was absolutely fascinating, but telling example about human sociality and human behavior. And that's really what got me interested. I mean, this is a long way of saying, you know, what got me interested in the economic stuff was Smith thought maybe that's something similar to the way markets operate. There's no one person in charge of them. There's nobody saying what the proper price for something is or an improper price. It depends on the individual decisions many of us make. And yet we do develop a sense of, well, that's paying too much for that, or that's not paying enough for it or whatever it is. So Smith thought there might be something there, some, some aspect of human sociality where we develop judgment about joke telling, about morality, about how much to pay for something that is an interactive process between ourselves and all of the people we come into contact with. And I thought this was an absolutely fascinating idea. Yeah, wow. I've really seen that through like your reading and your books, that just application of this morality. And I like this idea of rules and rules change over time. And I've seen that in your writing. Specifically, I want to go to where you call, I guess, zero-sum fallacy. Let's just start there. And, and I say that because the rules do change because you in your book talk about how for many different dynasties, or you talk about the pharaohs, they did this idea of extraction. So they had different rules and now they're kind of changing. How about let's, I'm just going to put it over to you. I have a specific question I'm going to ask you after I hear your response. That doesn't sound like I'm going to listen to your question, but I'm going to listen to it, but I'm just parking this question. But for the listeners, let's talk about this premise that you really, really articulate well in your book and other talks is, Wealth is a zero-sum fallacy. Can you explain and elaborate on that? Thanks for asking. Yeah, so economists distinguish, between not just economists, sort of social scientists distinguish between two kinds of, let's use an example of games. Think of a zero-sum game. If you and I play chess, for example, one of us will win, that means the other one has to lose. And there are lots of examples, football, baseball, you know, you have a winner, you have a loser. And if you transfer that to other areas of human life, so outside of games like that, Think about it in wealth. So you mentioned the pharaoh. The pharaohs who built the pyramids, well, that took a lot of wealth, a lot of capital to build those pyramids. Where did they get all of that wealth and capital? Well, by taking it from other people. They conquered other people, enslaved other people, they colonized other lands, and they took their goods and materials and labor and concentrated it in one place and made the pyramids. All of those are examples of what you might call zero-sum transactions. If you think about it in the economic realm, but in a simple example, If you go into a coffee shop, suppose you have something that I would like. It doesn't matter what it is. You have something I would like. It could be your phone. It could be your labor. It could be anything. Suppose I would like you to work for me. You have labor I would like for my company, let's say. You know, there are two ways I could get that from you. One is just to force you to work for me. I could put a gun to your head or I could enslave you. That's what the pharaohs did. They just enslaved people. That's called a zero-sum transaction because if I just take that from you, if I take a good or a service, whatever it is, if I just take it from you against your will... Well, it's positive benefit for me, but you lost that benefit for you. So it's positive for me plus the loss for you, positive plus negative is a zero. So it's a zero sum. So it's not actually creating new wealth. It's just moving it from one place to another. That's been the tried and true. You know, if you think about human society, how have human societies throughout history gotten whatever wealth they've tended to get? That's how. Whenever one person or one group gets enough power over another person or group, what do they do? Well, they conquer them, they take their stuff, they steal from them, 
That's what would they do. All of those are examples of zero-sum transactions. It's not generating new wealth. It's just moving it from one place to another. You know, the way if you went to a beach and built a sandcastle, if you built a sandcastle on a beach and said, oh, look at all of this new sand I created. Well, no, you didn't create any new sand. You just moved it from one place to another. So I think the fallacy is to think that because there are lots of cases like that, of zero-sum transactions, where every winner, there must be a loser, where every gainer, there must be a loser, we think that's true for all exchanges. That's the fallacy. There are different kinds of exchanges. So go back to an economic exchange just between the two of us, let's say. You have a smartphone that I would like to have. Um, you know, I could steal it from you. If I steal your smartphone from you, well, plus one for me, minus a smartphone for you, plus one plus minus one is zero, zero sum exchange. But there's another way I could get it from you. And that way is I could make you an offer that you're free to accept or decline. So if I offer to pay you some money for it and you accept it, now think about that. So you give me the phone and I give you the money. In a case like that, it's not a zero sum exchange. It's actually a positive sum exchange because if I didn't think I benefited from the exchange, I wouldn't have done it. So the fact that I agreed to do it, I think it, that means that I must think that I benefit from it. Same is true for you. If you didn't think you benefited from a voluntary exchange, then you wouldn't have done it either. But if you agreed to it, that must mean you thought there was some benefit for you. So positive benefit for you and at the same time, positive benefit for me, positive plus positive is a positive overall benefit. So my suggestion is that when we think about wealth you know, today, come into the, you know, the world today, when we think about a market economy and we see a great deal of economic disparity, wealth disparity, wealth inequality, our instinct is to assume that that must all be the result of zero-sum transactions. So you start a business, you're very successful in your business, let's suppose you become a billionaire. Our first instinct is to think it must be like the pharaohs with their pyramids. In other words, you must have done somewhere, somewhere along the line, you must have enriched yourself only by impoverishing somebody else. And I think that's the mistake to think that's a fallacy when it applies to voluntary exchanges. So what you often have, and I think this is the more frequent case in a market, some kind of a market economy, the transactions people engage in are not zero sum. They're actually positive sum. They create more benefit. They create a net increase in wealth or prosperity. And so although there still are lots of people who will you know, get what they have by extraction and by fraud and all of that, that still goes on, of course. But there are many, many exchanges in which people are actually mutually benefiting. So it's mutually voluntary and it's mutually beneficial. And so the fallacy is to think that all wealth actually results only from zero-sum exchanges. In fact, a great deal of it, and I would say most of what we've had since the 18th century, since we've had this huge uptick in the total amount of wealth that the world has created, that has been the result not of zero-sum exchanges, but from positive-sum exchanges. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. And I really, really appreciate the detail. And especially in the book, you, you go into a lot of detail, which helps out. And when I first heard this, and when I first heard you a couple of times on podcast talking, I'm like, yep, this sounds great. This sounds great. And then in the book, it starts talking about how you give even Jeff Bezos example about how there's some billionaires who from this market economy become billionaires. But the poorest, the poorest of the poor are becoming, no, I'm not going to use the word wealthier, but you go, they have $1, $2, $3, and they're improving in the last, I don't know how many years, but you have a graph that you, you showed. And my initial reaction was like, no, Amazon, like, no, no, you guys are creating this internal narrative of the overall society of chase money, profit, 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 profit. Yeah. But then you do lay out in there that overall, 
there hasn't been as much, I guess, increase in the poorest of the poor people as the last, again, maybe you can say the specific years, but maybe for those listeners who have that same gut reaction of me is like, how are we like, I feel I see on social media, there's this big wealth gap going on. The billionaires during COVID made more money. How is this even possible? Can you explain what you talk about in your book about how the poorest of the poor, and again, the marginally getting better, uh, or sorry, like your example of a thousand dollars impacts someone who lives on a dollar a day way more than Jeff Bezos. But if someone said to you, I don't believe this, like, I, I like this idea, it's very aspirational, but is it actually being applied? Because what we see is people sensationalize these billionaires and it, it seems like the pursuit of money is their main perspective and desire. So that wasn't really a question. That was a statement that hopefully you find a question to answer in it. Yeah. It's can this really be true? This nice story that we're telling, is it really true? And so, you know, for any particular wealthy person or billionaire that you pick, you mentioned, you know, are they really only about profit or is that the only thing that matters to them? Maybe. I mean, I I don't personally know any billionaires, so I can't speak to any of their personalities. But what I can speak to is overall trends. And so, you know, in the last 40 years or so, economists have gotten very good. We've gotten a lot of data. We've gotten very good at looking at overall trends of wealth creation and, of course, also wealth disparity, wealth dispersion, all of these things that that we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about today. But before 40 or 50 years ago or so, we didn't really have good data on it. It was was a lot of sort of anecdotes and people were just going based on their gut perceptions or maybe their own, you know, their own experience. But now we actually have some pretty good data. So what we can see is that I'll give you a, a sort of a benchmark. The United Nations today defines what it calls absolute poverty. Absolute poverty is anyone who is living at about $2, contemporary United States dollars, $2 per person per day or less. Okay, so just think about that, you know, think about what it would mean for you to live on $2 a day for everything, food, clothing, shelter, healthcare, your next holiday, you know, all of it, $2 a day, that's not very much. So that's the definition of absolute poverty. Well, it turns out that before about 1800, it was something like 99% of all human beings for the rest of human history before that, as long as there have been homo sapiens on the planet. That was actually approximately the level at which they all lived. So what we call absolute poverty today was just the norm for all of human existence. It just never changed. There was no economic progress, no economic increase. And by the way, I think our earlier conversation about zero-sum versus positive-sum exchanges, that's basically why, because people were just extracting wealth from each other. As soon as anybody had anything, other people would come along and steal it and take it. People were just weren't creating new wealth. Then things began to change. So since 1800, overall wealth began to increase, and it's now at levels that have never been seen in human history. So the total amount of wealth per person today is higher than it has ever been in human history. So if we just look at all of the wealth and if we divided it you know, by the number of people alive, you know, if we assumed everybody had an equal amount, well, we would be way better off. But of course, that doesn't tell the whole story because we're not, we don't all have an equal share of it. Some people have much more than others. So the total amount of wealth has gone up substantially. You know, estimates are something like 3,000% increase in total wealth. Could be some people put a little higher than that, but that's a generally accepted estimate. Three thousand percent increase in total in real wealth, not nominal or you know, not just in monkeying with the currencies or something. That's in real in real wealth. But to your question about wealth disparity, which I think maybe is part of the story that you're wondering about. You know, you have a Jeff Bezos today who I don't know what he's worth, 130 billion. 
I guess it depends on what you know the, the Amazon stock shares are trading at today. You know, he he loses a billion and gains a billion here and there. What's a billion among friends? I guess. What does that mean for the rest of the people who aren't anything like that? Well, uh, what we've been able to discover is that it turns out that for the vast majority of people, not 100%, but the vast majority of people, substantially everybody's wealth has increased. If you think today of that same United Nations level of $2 per person per day, whereas in 1800, it was about 99% of humanity. In 1900, 100 years later, it was about 90%, 90, 90%. Today, it's less than 9%. So the proportion of people at that level of poverty has dramatically decreased. And at the same time, we have a lot more people on the planet. So the population has gone up. In 1800, we had about a billion people on the earth. Now we've got over 7.5 billion, approaching 8 billion people. A lot more people, and yet a very small, much smaller proportion of them living at that level. Now, that's still, I mean, the bad news is we still have something like 650 million or so people living at that level or lower in the world, but we're approaching now 7 billion people, 7 billion with a B, 7 billion who have risen above that level. So that doesn't mean that everybody's equally well off. That's certainly not the case. That's obviously not the case. Um, But it does mean that substantially everybody is getting better. And we're just in the last 40 years or so, even in the last 30 years, the proportion of people at that absolute poverty level has plummeted even faster at a faster rate than it had before. So I think you and I stand a very good chance in our lifetimes, um, and maybe relatively soon in our lifetimes, when there will effectively be zero people at that level of poverty, which would be the first time that's ever happened in human history. So I think a cause for great celebration. So it's still the case that there's a great deal of disparity, no question about that. But substantially, everybody is moving up, not at the same rate, not to the same levels, but everybody, almost everybody is getting better off. I like your optimism, which is awesome (laughs) because you have a lot of knowledge and education behind you that in our lifetime, we might see a massive reduction of poverty. And our definitions of poverty change, too. I mean, if you think about the official level of poverty in the United States, so what the federal government says counts as being at the poverty in the United States, If you look at that level today, a person who's officially at that level of poverty in the United States is about at the 65th percentile worldwide. So what that means is that what counts as poor in a wealthy place like the United States would actually make you solidly middle class in many of the other countries in the world, which is something that, you know, if you only spend time in your own community or only in the United States, let's say, um, you might not have that perspective. But it just shows that as wealth increases, our definition of what's minimally decent for people also goes up with the increasing wealth. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say that this disparity that was like picking on me really clouded this overall progress when you give out the numbers of overall the progress that we've had. And yeah, that disparity gap just for whatever reason, it clouds my ability to look at, wait, you know what? We've actually done well, comparatively speaking, over a lifetime of humans. But you talk about honorable businesses and this idea of economics can help our society. When I look at organizations and honorable businesses, and I'll let you explain what that is, I can't ignore that I feel, and this is personal judgment that's based on my own biases, but I feel like money tests people and organizations' morality all the time. And what I mean by that, it causes us to lie, cheat, steal, start wars, prolong wars, influences organizations to make profit-driven decisions, which again, aren't all the time, but but it does happen. From a political standpoint, it makes us politicians say and do things 
because sometimes we're influenced by money, not necessarily the greater good of society. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> and money influences and has a history of influencing us to do harmful things. And I know this a lot. You talk about the seven deadly economic sins in your book. But going back to Adam Smith, he talks about, I believe, but the morality stems from our social nature. So if I get that right, like our social nature is what we're learning. And like, is that the case where we learn our morality through what we're experiencing in the social nature? Yes, right. If I look at the business landscape now, which could be part of the social nature, billionaires of the business world really influence startups in Silicon Valley to like, as they say, rise and grind and try to make these big IPO offerings. And there's just all this narrative around making money, making money, make these big, big companies. There's never been before that we can like, have a garage and start a company and make billions of dollars within three years by selling it. And we see tweets from people like Elon Musk. And I don't know if this was a fictional tweet or not, but it's circulated on the internet saying that working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, and people still call me lucky. And you see people <laughs> respond to that, be like, yeah, we got to work hard. So I guess my question is, is that business money tends to challenge our morality. And when we see the social landscape really in some pockets around this work, work, work to make money, how do businesses get to this honorable level? That's a big question. I mean, a lot of elements of that question. Yeah, sorry. No, that's fine. The first part of what you were talking about was, it sounded like, you know, sort of the corrupting effect of money. Can money corrupt our moral sensibilities and maybe even corrupt our relationship to other people, et cetera? I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. And I think that's been one of the enduring vices of humanity as long as there have been human beings pursuing my own benefit, possibly at the expense of other people. If I have the opportunity to benefit myself at other people's expense, that's a seductive and alluring thing to do. And many people, in fact, do that. So I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a new thing. I would say that that's something that has been part of the flaw in the human character for a very long time. Can money corrupt? Yes, absolutely. Uh, many things can corrupt us. That's one of them. If you want to think about the business in particular, and there's one other aspect you mentioned, Elon Musk. You know, I work whatever it was, 16 hours a day, 52 weeks a year and all of that. And people say it's a matter of luck. You know, I can see how something like that might grate and might put people off if you say something like that, because on the one hand, we do want to recognize that, yeah, some people work harder than others. And so, you know, there seems to be a, a sense in which, well, you know, if you're working hard, then you deserve what reward you get. On the other hand, does that mean that you should be worth $100 billion as opposed to somebody else who maybe is also working 16 hours a day and isn't worth anything like $100 billion? So does that completely account for that? And one of the things that I think can be off-putting about, say, a mar you know, market economy is that is the sense that some people just get lucky. You know, maybe you were born with certain skills and talents that other people didn't have, or maybe you had parents who loved you or sent you to good schools or made good connections for you. And if you can't really lay claim to having deserved any of that, you're just born where you were born. You were, you know, you were sent to whatever school you were sent to. So a lot of that seems to be, or could be explained by luck. And some people have bad luck in all those ways too. So some people have good luck and some people have bad luck. When that comes into what constitutes honorable business, well, we have on the one hand, the potentially corrupting influence of money. And on the other hand, you know, do we really want to reward good luck or punish bad luck? So my suggestion about honorable business is it's not a description of all business. It's more of an aspiration of what can be the case. 
But I would say it is a description of a lot of business, certainly not all. So what I mean by that is that the distinction that we had, we talked about before between zero sum and positive sum exchanges, honorable business, I think, is when you seek to benefit yourself and it's okay to seek to benefit yourself or your own family or your own community, but you do it only by, at the same time, simultaneously benefiting somebody else. That's, I think, the distinction between what we might call productive or positive cooperation, where we both, where both or all parties benefit um, on the one hand versus extraction, where I'm benefiting myself at your expense. So think about those two cases. I benefit myself at your expense. That's extraction. That's zero sum. That's benefiting me. That's dishonorable business. On the other hand, um, if I benefit myself only by benefiting you and benefiting you in a way, um, I would even add a little bit to it, benefiting you in a way that both you and I genuinely think is real benefit. In other words, it's not me be, being sort of paternalistic saying, well, you ought to want this. You don't want it. You say no thanks, but I'm going to make you take it anyway or something because I think it's better for you. No, I respect you as a person, as a person of dignity. You get to make choices. You get to say no thank you to me if you walk away. But if the benefit I get actually comes only through exchanges, partnerships, transactions that also benefit you from your perspective, so you think you benefit too, that I think is what can be honorable. And in those cases, so you get two things there. On the one hand, there's the economic claim that if you and I are engaging in mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial transactions, those are positive sum. They're increasing the overall prosperity, even if it's just incrementally or a little bit. You know, Each one of those exchanges increases net prosperity a little bit. On the other hand, and this is, I think, the moral claim, if I feel as though the only way I should interact with other people like you is by giving you what I call an opt-out option. I make you a proposal. I make you an offer. You always have the right to say no thank you and go somewhere else. If you have that right, and I am bound to respect that right. So now let's suppose I'm Jeff Bezos. And I, of course, I want everybody to buy everything from Amazon. But if you have the right to say no thanks and go somewhere else, and I can't make you buy from me, I can't force you to do it. I have to respect your right to say no thanks then even if I'm the greediest, most selfish person in the world, if I want to succeed, I have to then think about you. So I have to think about what can I give you that you would value? Now, I might try to talk you into things and maybe some of those things wouldn't actually constitute value, but that shift in my focus that's required by your opt-out option, I think is what begins to point business towards honorable business rather than dishonorable business. Yeah, and I think having that agency to be able to opt out is key. I would assume there's there's situations where people in uh, maybe organizations or people try to create this positive sum where they feel it's a cooperation and they feel like there's an opt out. But I can imagine sometimes people might not feel like they actually have the chance and life circumstance might be like, I can't leave this job. I can't say no to these low wages this big organization is giving me. Yeah, And, and I guess that's what I think your message, what I really got from your book and your TED talk is that these are aspirational goals and businesses have to lead by doing them. And I liked how you talked about who benefits more in this, some of these partnerships. And there's a quote that actually you put by the philosopher John Rawls. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I really like that. I want to bring it up here because I, I bring it up because honorable businesses where sometimes I feel like the benefit can't always be the exact same, nor should it be the exact same. And this quote kind of speaks to that. And so it says here that John Rawls, 
argue that the principle of justice, or fairness as he calls it, requires that inequalities may be allowed only if their primary beneficiaries are the least advantaged in society. And I really like that idea of this, like it's okay if they're advantaged more. Maybe can you speak to why you specifically put this section in your book and what relevance, if any, does it have to this cooperation partnership? Great question. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah, so Rawls was, uh, you know, one of the most important political philosophers of the 20th century. And that quote comes from his very famous book, A Theory of Justice, which came out in 1972, I believe. But I thought that that captured in a way, believe it or not, Adam Smith was arguing in the 18th century. So when Adam Smith turned his attention, not in the theory of moral sentiments so much, but in the now more famous book, The Wealth of Nations, from the very first page of that book going forward, including even in the introduction, What he makes clear is that his concern, so he wants to understand why some places are getting wealthy and other places aren't, and what lessons can we learn about this? But it's not just merely an academic exercise. It's not just a matter of historical curiosity. It's because it's motivated in part by what he thinks is the moral mandate for us, that if we can understand the causes of wealth, what, what leads to increasing prosperity, then we should do our best to apply those causes so that more and more people can rise out of poverty. So he talks about, for example, Adam Smith talks about um, in The Wealth of Nations, the levels of poverty that he saw with his own eyes, like in the highlands of Scotland, where you would have people, he says, you know, these small tribes, uh, these small clans that were existing in the highlands, they were very close to subsistence. They were so poor that in many cases, he says, you would see families have to make the gut-wrenching decision about which of their children to allow to die so that the other ones could live. And he says, you know, these are horrific realities of poverty in the 18th century. And so the discussion that he then goes on to give in the Wealth of Nations is, what are the institutions that we can endorse that would enable more people like that to rise out, You know, even if it's just step by step, incrementally to rise out of those levels of poverty? What he's not concerned about is the king. He's not concerned about the lords and the barons. He says, they're going to figure out how to get theirs on there already. We don't need to worry about that. What we're really worried about is how can we, in the 18th century, this would have been for the first time, is there any even hope of allowing more and more people to rise out of poverty, going from extreme poverty to less poverty, maybe even to middle class, maybe even some of them could hope to rise even higher. And that, I think, is what's captured or what's reflected in that uh, quote you read from John Rawls, is that suppose it turns out that the only institutions we've ever been able to figure out that will enable more and more people to rise out of poverty Suppose it turns out that those same institutions allow people to have differing levels of wealth. So some people rise far out of poverty. Other people rise a little bit out of poverty. So people are increasing. Everybody's increasing, but not at the same rate. Well, in that case, I think the Rawlsian argument, if I can use that term, the Rawlsian claim would be, then the inequality can be justified if what's happening is that you have people who were in extremely poor circumstances who are now being able to create a life for themselves that they otherwise couldn't have imagined and never had experienced. And so I think that's part of what the, you know, as you say, aspirational mission of thinking about what I would call a humane and just society and a humane and just economics is not to concern ourselves directly with, you know, the potential billionaires in the world, you know, they're going to take care of themselves, but what are the institutions that really enable people to have the kind of life that they never had before, that they never maybe even imagined was possible so that they can maybe for the first time begin to provide their children things like, you know, meat at every meal 
And maybe, you know, they don't have to go to work in the fields when they're seven. Instead, maybe they can have some schooling and then maybe the next generation, maybe even more schooling, et cetera. And so it's a ladder or escalator process up. You can't go from one to a hundred. It takes time. But I think that's um, the way to think about uh, inequality. So if the inequality is because some people are just extracting wealth from others, okay, that's wrong. But if inequality is a side effect of more and more people rising out of poverty and creating lives of meaning and purpose for themselves, then I think that's a case that's a much stronger case. Mm, I appreciate that. So you're really making me think of moral mandate of wealth. My mind is going into some of Peter Singer's work right now. So he's big on philosophy as well and reducing poverty. And he's got a chart that shows it's a guide. If you make X amount of money, perhaps you can look at giving this bunch away. So my question is around just ordinary people, not the Jeff Bezos. For people listening, say they're listening and they're like, wow, okay, $1,000. I think in your book, you talk about, oh, it wasn't even $1,000, but in your book, you talk about how a small amount of money can dramatically impact the pores of the poor from putting a pair of shoes on to walk to whatever they got to go to getting a bike, like dramatically change, giving meat and meals, give more protein. Or for us, that $1,000 could be consumed and lost fairly easy in some cases. So if someone's listening, be like, wow, this whole idea of the moral mandate of wealth and they're questioning like, should I be giving back? My first question is maybe it's your perspective what Adam Smith would answer or me yourself. Do we as people who have enough, do we have a moral mandate to give back, to share, to look at Peter Singer's wealth chart and give money back to people who are less fortunate than ourselves? Great question. So I have written in quite a bit about Peter Singer in the past um, and about his argument. I agree in part with Peter Singer's argument, but I would recast part of it. So is there a moral mandate to wealth? Yes, I think there is. But instead of putting it the way Peter Singer might or the way you might or the way you were um, describing it, that we have a moral mandate to give back, what I would say is we have a moral mandate to use our wealth for the benefit of others in addition to ourselves. Now, that might seem like splitting hairs, but I think that there's an important difference there. So on Peter Singer's argument, there's really only one way that you can help anybody with wealth, and that's by giving it charitably. So you give to overseas aid agencies, you give to you know, various kinds of charities. That certainly is or can be a way of helping others, no question about that. But I think business could also play a role. So there could be other ways that you could help. And what I mean by that is, I think it, the moral mandate is for us to look honestly at our situations and ask ourselves, well, given you know, the resources I have available to me, given the opportunities available to me, and also things like what are my skills and abilities and my own goals and values in life, what are the ways that I could best provide value in the world, um, not just to myself, but to other people? One way might be I start an NGO or a charity or I give to a charity. That's one kind of way. Another way might be I'm going to start a business and employ people. I'm going to give people a job. And maybe I'm going to give them for the first time in their family's history, they have a wage, a regular wage that they're getting. Maybe that's a way that I could. Or maybe, you know, the people who are already working for me, I'm going to increase their health care benefits. Or I'm going to give a bigger return to, you know, my family members who gave me some money to start this business. I'm going to return some of that money to them. There might be other ways too. I mean, still thinking within, you know, within the realm of business, you know, maybe I don't really know what would be best for you. You know, there are people, I don't know what's best for other people, but I think you probably have a pretty good idea about what would most benefit you in your life. So maybe a way that I could help is by lowering the prices of my goods that you're buying from me so that you have more of your resources to put to other things that matter to you. 
so that you can more fully construct a life of meaning and purpose for yourself. So when I say use our resources to the benefit of our, not just ourselves, but of others as well, there's a range of ways that I think people can do that. I think the key though, and the moral mandate part of it is that you have to honestly ask yourself that. So, you know, too often, I think we can just sort of use it as a rationalization or an excuse. Well, I don't really need to think about other people. You know, I'll leave that to their devices and, you know, that's up to them and it's not up to me. I think the moral mandate is to remember that other people are equal moral agents to us. They have dignity and agency just like us. And if I've had a lot of luck in life, to go back to the topic we had before, you know, maybe I've had a lot of good luck or maybe I was born with some skills or I have abilities, whatever those are. If I can't lay claim to them, that doesn't mean there's no moral obligation on me. The obligation is to be worthy of that, is to use that for some benefit and creating some value in the world. So I think there's a lot of different ways people can create value in the world. And the moral mandate, I would maybe even call it a moral calling. The moral calling is to use all of our time, talent, and treasure to create genuine value in the world. And that's not just for ourselves, but that's for others as well. You know, I really like how you framed that at the end. It's not just for ourselves, it's others in the world. Going back to Peter Singer's idea of giving money to an NGO or other charitable organizations, I can't remember where I saw this. You talked about helping others on their schedules, not yours. Oh, yes. And that really, I guess, highlights me because I've read and seen about actually how some NGOs aren't beneficial. And it goes back to this moral mandate and asking ourselves questions, even if I am giving money, who is it really for? You know, maybe I feel like I'm extracting and this is a way to make up for it. Am I doing it for me? Am I seeking to serve for myself, but it's disguised as helping other people? But I really like that idea of what you're saying is everyone is equal moral agents. And I think when we do that, we can then realize we can help other people on their schedules and not ours. And your way of like when you said start a business and employ people, it made me think of uh, some companies that started manufacturing a certain type of shoe. <laughs> and if they bought shoes, they give it overseas. And I think if that went through the moral mandate on helping others on their schedules, not theirs, maybe that company wouldn't have done that. Because if you look at this specific company later on, it actually caused more harm because once the shoe burnt out, the local shoemakers were put out of business because they got dumped load of shoes. And now there were no more shoes there. Whereas like you're saying, I like this idea of sharing skills, even if someone went over there and helped the local shoe manufacturers be more efficient or use the resources better. I think that could potentially help them flourish more than just giving. And I think sometimes when we just give our money, we got to be careful of who are we actually helping. Yeah. And where is that money going exactly? Yeah. And, you know, these things are much harder to do than they are to say. And I think one thing I would add to that, and maybe this is a bit more controversial, but I think I would add to that, that sometimes we tend to we, and what I mean by we are, you know, people who are already relatively wealthy, especially by world standards or by historical standards, we tend to think that for people who are still poor, who haven't yet risen out of those levels of poverty, that the reason is, you know, we don't quite articulate it to ourselves maybe this way, but the assumption is that they can't help themselves. In other words, they're not fully human agents the way you and I are. They'll only succeed if we come in, you know, like they're children or something. And, you know, parents need to come in and help them out. And there's a lot of veiled discussion along those lines, especially when it comes to development efforts in developing countries, as if we can't trust them to do anything on their own. They have no skills. They have no abilities, no agency. And when you actually look at it, many, not all, and I'm speaking in general terms, but in many of these situations, 
the poverty that people still experience is as much as often is a result of bad policies that are preventing them from improving their own situations as they are from, you know, their own inability to do so. And so, you know, I, I tend to think that, you know, to some extent, we should think about sort of our political and economic institutions and the way we think of medicine. You know, medicine's first rule is first do no harm. You know, in many cases, if we stop doing the bad things we're already doing to poor people, we just stop doing those things, allow them to own property, allow them the legal possibility to start a business if they want to, or to enter into a market or exchange, that could do a lot of good and sometimes even uh, more good than, you know, just writing a check to an unknown agency that goes somewhere I don't know where. Yeah, I agree so much. And you used the word paternalistic earlier. And I think a lot of that aid comes from I know better. So, hey, I don't see you as an equal moral agent. So I'm going to tell you what to do. My wife, she's a community health nurse. And we went to this health conference in Yale. And the health minister of Rwanda was the keynote speaker. And she was just fascinating. And she explained how Rwanda genocide to where they are now, where their literacy rates are up, their vaccination rates up, a lot of adherence to their policies. And she put on the screen a map of all the NGOs. And it was all around like the nice coastal areas and nice areas where the NGOs would want to be. And she's like, you know, NGOs, you come, you come, but you stay right there. She's like, stay there, get out of the way, because the real work's happening in the middle of the country. Wow. And you're out of our way and we're doing it. And she's just as powerful, like, yeah, very inspirational. But she said, like, we had to look at the policies and what policies were suppressing and keeping every this country in poverty. And she said that we just started changing them all. And yeah, that country is a really good example of when the leadership is on side and creates these policies that help bring people out of, in their case, she was specifically talking about health, but you look at their health record or like their progress, it's phenomenal. And she made a really interesting thing that always stuck with me is she said, the NGOs, if they know that the money's not going where it should be going and the government's corrupt, yes, the government's corrupt, but she's like, shame on you for continuing to give the money because you're the hand that feeds. Yeah. I mean, yeah. wow, that, that hits like a ton of bricks when you hear that, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. She's a phenomenal lady. She's actually started a, a master's program in Northern Rwanda for equity and diversity. To your point of who's benefiting, it's a free-edged university and you have to give, I think, nine years of service to vulnerable populations. But um, wow. 75% of all the applicants have to be female. And she's like, is that fair? Of course it's fair. She's like, for years, they haven't been, you know, females haven't been as educated in Rwanda and so forth. So that's a great example. And, uh, you know, there are still places in the world where, you know, half the population of a country is not allowed to legally own property. So, you know, writing a check to them might be a lot less beneficial than getting rid of that policy, allowing people to, you know, allowing women and others to own property, to start their own enterprises, improve their lives. And, you know, sometimes you, you might be surprised at how well they're able to do that if you just allow them to do so. Yeah, I mean, there's so many taxation rules could be changed for people who don't have property and accessing it would be great. Well, I really appreciate this conversation. I've had one last question that I ask everyone. So a lot of the podcast is on a relationship of money we have with ourselves as it creates the story we tell ourselves about money. If you fast forward till you're 95 years old, you're sitting, I don't know where you live, Chicago or wherever, but it doesn't have to be there. It could be anywhere in the world and you're on this front porch looking back at your life and you were tasked to write a letter to your kids' kids on what you've learned on how to have a good relationship with money, what would that letter entail? Oh, uh, wow. That's a tough question. So 
my short and off-the-cuff answer is that uh, money is a very powerful tool. But like other tools, it can be put to good and bad ends. And it should never be mistaken for the final end that it can be a tool towards. So you have to think about what, when you're 95 years old, looking back on the life you led, what kind of life do you want to have led such that you look at it and say, that was a life worth having been led? You know, whatever my abilities, talents, opportunities were, I led a life that was worth having been led. I think what you'll find is that money helps that. It's one among many other tools, but it is not the end. You will not say, well, I made a lot of money. That won't be the thing. So it could be something that helped enable you achieve what you might think of as a truly happy, uh, you know, virtuously happy life, but it is not the end itself. Thank you for that. That was a really interesting answer. I like that. So where can people find more about you with your website and your book and anything else you want to say about the work you're doing? Yeah, thank you. So my most recent book, as you've mentioned, is Seven Deadly Economic Sins. It's available at any bookstore, including the one we were talking about. You can get it at Amazon. It was published by Cambridge University Press, so you can get it from Cambridge as well. If people want to find out more about me or even get in contact with me, my website is just my name. It's jamesoddison.com. And that um, includes lists of other works that I'm working on now and things that I have written before and also ways to get in touch with me. Wonderful. And, and I have to say your book, it's very insightful, but it's digestible. It's not just, you don't need a PhD to read it. Thank you. That, that was intentional. We wanted to do that on purpose. Yeah. But you can tell the content is not just something you dreamt up of. <laughs> like it's well-researched. And Thank you. I really enjoyed that dynamic of knowing I'm reading this very well-researched and backed information, but it's very digestible. Thank you very much. And that was the goal. That's what I was trying to do. So that's great. I'm glad you agree. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I told you, Jim gets us thinking. Thinking in ways that I feel are really important. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you want to know more about Jim, I would really suggest getting a copy of his book. It's a fascinating book. I'll have a link in the show notes. And until next week, have yourself a wonderful week. Take care.